Center to be here tonight on the second of the, of the series to um, welcome you, <coughs> welcome um, our friends and colleagues from the Soviet Union and uh, two American writers whom I'm sure you are familiar with in what I hope will be uh, another rather extraordinary evening of readings. Um, after some limited consultation, uh, we will proceed this evening uh, as simply as possible. I think it would be useful to read the biographical notes of each of uh, the authors, <clears throat> and then I will introduce um, the first reader and as each writer comes forth to read, whether in English or in Russian, or be read along with um, another writer, and I'm making this terribly clear. Uh, <coughs> it's a little ad hoc. Um, but the point is that I understand there are a number of people here who do understand Russian, so that there's not a serious problem along those lines. But there will be text read in Russian and in English. That's really what I was trying to say. The first um, writer is Viktor Petrovich Golishev, who was born in June, 1920, June 26, 1937 in Moscow, graduated from the Moscow Physics and Technics Institute in 1961. His first publication appeared in 1961, and since that time, He's been working as a translator of American literature. He is reputed to be the most eminent and gifted translator of American fiction into Russian. Mr. Golishev has translated works from a broad spectrum of authors, including J.D. Salinger, Thornton Wilder, William Faulkner, Robert Penn Warren, William Styron, and V.S. Naipaul. His renderings of Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men and William Faulkner's Light in August are the best known. Mr. Golishev is an artist as well as a translator, recreating the American experience in the very different linguistic texture of the Russian language. Mr. Golishev is first on my right. <coughs> the next. Uh, sitting next to Mr. Golshev is Mr. Siren, whom I will not introduce. <clears throat> but the next reader is Daniel Alexandrovich Granin. Born in 1919, two years after the founding of the Soviet Union. His birthplace was Volin, now Kursk province. He studied engineering at the Polytechnical Institute in Leningrad, graduated in 1941, and was assigned to work in a factory in Kirov as an electrical engineer. During World War II, Granin served in the infantry and later as the commander of a tank regiment. He began to write after the war while working to reconstruct the electrical power system of Leningrad. Second variant, Granin's first story, was published in the journal Zvetsa in 1949. But it was not until after the publication of his first novel, Those Who Seek, that he began to write full time. 
His two subsequent novels, After the Wedding and I Challenge the Storm, have been adapted for the stage. Brennan's most recent work, The Bison, was published within the last 18 months and has been very highly acclaimed. He's also published numerous novellas, essays, and short stories. Drawing on his own experiences as an engineer, he presents fictional accounts of Soviet technological society. He's concerned about the crisis of conscience in modern science and the responsibility of technological man, a prime figure in creating a civic and civil social climate. He celebrates the mediocre yet dedicated scientist whose sole interest in his work is the quest for truth. The virtuous hero is juxtaposed with brilliant scientists who are preoccupied with more personal interests such as fame, power, and financial security. Thus, in a broader sense, Brennan's exploration of a scientific, of scientific quest is a critique of social values. Next, we have Fazil Abdulovich Iskander, poet, short story writer, and novelist. He's a native of Georgian as Abkhazia, where he was born in 1929. He left his childhood city of Sukhumi, probably, to study in Moscow, first at the Institute of Library Science and later at the Gorky Literary Institute. Graduated in 1953 and published his first book of verse, Mountain Pass, in 1957. He has published several collections of verse, but he's best known for his numerous short stories and novels, including <coughs> It looks like Godebeck's. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> the Godebeck's Constellation in 1970, and Sandro from Shagem. <coughs> I'm going to leave here very shortly. <coughs> Although Iskander writes in Russian, many of his stories are set in Abkhazia and outlying regions of Georgia. His fiction, largely autobiographical and narrated in the first person, describes with great charm and humor the exploits of a principal figure and other colorful characters. With his unique affinity for the comic, Iskander is able to shift his focus from human frailties to social evils. This artless quality may be traced to his early stories, which are presented from the illogical yet telling viewpoint of a child. His work has a mythic quality, reminiscent of the Brazilian author Jorge Amado, though Iskander's folklore and political overtones are darker. <laughs> the last one to read is Mr. Dmitry Mikhailovich Uranov, born January the 1st, 1936, in Moscow. His first critical work was published in 1957, and following his graduation from the Faculty of Philology at Moscow State University in 1958, he began a career as a literary scholar and critic. His principal fields of interest are English and American literature, and while his primary work is on William Shakespeare, he's also written about Daniel Defoe, Lewis Carroll, Joseph Conrad, and James Joyce. Apart from his critical works, 
Mr. Uranoff is the author of books on cavalrymen and <coughs> equestrian sports. So would you help me welcome, first of all, Mr. Golishev. Translator, not a writer. And recently I was asked to write a review of a hefty collection of articles under the title Translation as a Means of Bringing People Together. The contributors were writers, translators, and critics, from the Russian poet and diplomat Kantemir to those writing today. I declined. The theme is too amorphous and too big and perhaps the mass media would be more effective in this field. What interests me is, uh, is a regard, in this regard, is a translation as a part of my own literature. In what degree it succeeds to become a part of the literature? It would seem that in 1930s and in the last three decades, uh, were optimal in this regard. How we can explain it? Firstly, by the fact that foreign literature, especially American, told us things about human life that our own literature couldn't tell or dare not say. Secondly, by the fact that the literary text, technically speaking, became there was no gap between uh, original text and translated text in a technical sense. Translated text became quite literary, which was not so before. The, the stylistic and not, and not only stylistic influence of foreign writers and especially of American writers has manifested itself in writings of Russian men and women of letters lately. This could be better explained by critic as a person necessarily more thoughtful than a translator. But speaking for myself, I clearly discerned works written under the influence of Hemingway and later by Faulkner and Salinger. This became possible because of the emergency because of the emergence in 1930s of Soviet schools of translators, gifted and professionally trained literary workers. Even before that, that time, there were magnificent translators like Stenich, who, who did Das Passes, and Tchaikovsky, a versatile and gifted writer and translator, by the way, of Mark Twain and O. Henry. But it finally took shape with the creation of Kashkin's group, Topper, Larjek, Holmske, Kalashniko, Volgina, uh, and others, nearly all of whom are dead now. In the thinking and mainly in the practice of these people, criteria of precision and of the necessary lessons were hammered. 
a cultural lexicon, cultured, cultural lexicon with roots in Russian classical literature of 19th century was incorporated and many foreign realities became part of our thinking, no longer requiring lengthy explanation. We could feel the tone of each American writer already. <coughs> Remaining bottlenecks were vernacular and slang. Though it can be said that the problem has been resolved lately, and generally speaking, it can never be resolved once and for all in principle. The each case is individual. Today such unanimity is no more, though the principles have been preserved, but on the average the standard of translation is, has declined. It's natural, much more is being translated. And perhaps the best translators <coughs> resemble one another to a lesser degree than before the war. Perhaps the very body of the translated literature, the accumulated knowledge of uh, what we have met previously, afford the translator opportunities for traveling in different directions. It is my view that after Bailey, Hlebnikov, Platonov, Zoschenko, and Mandelstam have become classics, it is impossible to create an adequately living translation of contemporary author while at the same time holding as a criterion the artistic excellence of the great classical literature of 19th century. If I were asked to say what kind of translation is best, I would say this, that which is most alive, even though containing more errors. A translation, provided it has some relevance to art, is alive exactly to the same extent that the personal experience of the translator is contributed to it, not merely linguistic experience. It is irrelevant whether the book describes a car drive, a landscape, somebody's death, or a love affair. Some famous man of letters said that uh, a translation a translation should be like a sheet, sheet of a glass. The more transparent it is, <laughs> the better. <laughs> this, I believe, is a bit idyllic. idyllic. <coughs> the translator should try to render an, an author honestly. This is ax axiomatic. But one can hardly be honest, honest when using ready-made blocks wherever the wherever the author was in torments attempting to say something underivative, something new. For the underivative perceived and comprehended for the first time and presented lucidly is the very life of the literature. And the same, but on a smaller scale, can be said of translation. One should translate only those books which one could have written oneself had one been smart enough. <laughs> but two things militate, mitigate, militate with this ideal. 
the imprecise realizations of your realization of your own potential and the need to earn money. <laughs> so that's it. That's all. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Uh, Granin will read from his own work, and um, William Styron will read also in English. Is that right? That's the way it's going to work? Okay. In <laughs> And in that order, I think Mr. Gurney would go first, and then Mr. Styron. Okay. Я прочитаю не из художественного произведения, а из статьи. Меня просили которая была напечатана в этом году и вызвала много разных у нас споров в нашей стране. I'm not going to read a, a work of art, uh, a work of fiction, but rather an article which I wrote this year and which was published this year and which has been a cause of a great deal of controversy. Называется это о милосердии. It's called on uh, mercifulness. В прошлом году Со мной приключилась беда. Шел по улице, поскользнулся и упал. Упал неудачно, хуже некуда. Лицом опоребрик, сломал себе нос. Рука выскочила в плече, повисла. Было это примерно в 7 часов вечера. В центре города, на Кировском проспекте, недалеко от дома, где живу. С большим трудом поднялся, забрел ближайший подъезд, пытался унять платком кровь. Куда там? Я чувствовал, что держусь шоковым состоянием. Боль накатывает все сильнее, и надо быстрее что-то делать. И говорить не могу, рот разбит. Решил повернуть назад домой. Я шел по улице, думаю, не шатаясь. Хорошо помню этот путь. Метров примерно 400. Народу на улице было много. На встречу прошла женщина с девочкой. Какая-то парочка. Пожилая женщина, мужчина, молодые ребята. Все они вначале с любопытством взглядывали на меня, а потом отводили глаза, отворачивались. Хоть бы кто-то на этом пути подошел ко мне, спросил, что со мной, не нужно ли помочь. Я запомнил лица многих людей, видимо, безотчетным вниманием, обостренным ожиданием помощи. Боль путала сознание, но я понимал, что если лягу сейчас на тротуаре, преспокойно будут перешагивать через меня, обходить. Надо добираться до дома. До дому. Там не, так никто мне и не помог. 
Позже я раздумывал над этой историей. Могли ли люди принять меня за пьяного? Вроде бы нет. Вряд ли я производил такое впечатление. Но даже если бы и принимали за пьяного, они же видели, что я весь в крови, что-то случилось, упал, ударили. Почему же не помогли? Не спросили хотя бы, в чем дело? Значит, пройти мимо, не ввязываться, не тратить времени, сил. Меня это не касается, стало чистым привычным. С горечью вспоминая этих людей, поначалу злился, обвинял, недоумевал, а потом стал вспоминать самого себя и нечто подобное отыскивал и в своем поведении. Легко упрекать других, когда находишься в положении бедственном, но обязательно надо вспоминать и самого себя. Не могу сказать, что при мне был точно такой случай. Не ввязываться, желание уклониться – это нечто подобное и со мною было. Уличая себя, понимал, насколько в нашей жизни привычно стало это чувство, как оно пригрелось, незаметно укоренилось. После того падения пришлось побывать мне в больнице. Это была самая обыкновенная старая городская больница скорой помощи. Поскольку она старая, то уже не совсем обыкновенная, ибо находилась в ужасном состоянии. Здание обветшало, полы в первом этаже шаткие, горячей воды нет. Не буду называть эту больницу, потому что работают там превосходные врачи, энтузиасты, которые именно в таких больницах и удерживаются. Не хочу, чтобы они пострадали, ибо, как правило, достается им, а не начальству. Ночами от боли не спалось, бродил я по коридору. Длинный этот коридор был заставлен койками и раскладушками с больными. Мест в палатах не хватало. Лежали в перемешку мужчины и женщины, постановали, ворочались, кто просил поднять, кто пить. Напоминало мне это фронтовой госпиталь после боя. С той лишь разницей, что санитарок не было. Давно известная беда не только ленинградских больниц. На травматологическое отделение на 90 больных имелась, имелась одна санитарка. То есть полагалось 4, но не было. Время от времени присылали на эту роль 15-суточниц, вот до чего доходило. Но в эту ночь никаких подсобниц не было. Кого-то я поил, кого-то загипсованного поворачивал. Подозвала меня одна старая женщина, попросила посидеть рядом. Пожаловалась, что страшно ей. Заговорила про своих близких, которые далеко про свою трудную, ныне одинокую жизнь. Взяла меня за руку, замолчала. Я думал, заснула, а она умерла. Рука ее стала коченеть. На фронте я навидался всяких смертей. И то, что люди умирают в больницах, вещь неизбежная. Но эта смерть поразила меня. Чужого, неважно кого, подозвала эта женщина, томясь от одиночества перед лицом смерти. 
Невыносимое должно быть чувство. Наказание страшное, за что неизвестно. Хоть кому-то прислониться, заботу о человеке, бесплатную медицину, гуманизм, коллективность жизни. Как это все у нас соединить с тем, что вот человек, отработав весь свой век, умирает в такой заброшенности? Не стыдно ли это? Не позор ли? И вина наша всеобщая. У верующих существует таинство соборования, отпущения грехов. Человек причащается, человек чувствует приближение конца. Ему легче, когда рядом исполненный сочувствие и внимание, пусть даже чужой, не говоря уже о своих, чью-то руку держать в этот прощальный миг. Последнее слово сказать кому-то, чтобы его слышали. Хотя бы той же сестре милосердия, брату милосердия, которая у нас является устаревшим понятием. В такую минуту проверяется милосердие как уровень общественной нравственности. Милосердие у нас убывало не случайно. В тяжкие годы массовых репрессий людям не позволяли оказывать помощь близким, соседям, семьям пострадавших не давали приютить детей арестованных. Людей заставляли высказывать одобрение суровым приговорам, даже сочувствие невинно арестованным запрещалось. Чувство подобной милосердию расценивалось как подозрительное, а то и преступное. Оно стало неположенным и в искусстве. Милосердие действительно могло мешать жестокости. Оно мешало оговаривать, нарушать законность, уничтожать Милость к падшим призывать, воспитание этого чувства и возвращение к нему, призыв к нему, необходимость настоятельная и трудно оценимая. Я убежден, что литература наша, тем более сегодня, не может отказаться от Пушкинского завета. Двери надо распечатывать. Из истории нельзя выковыривать лишь лакомое, светлое. Печали истории нашей и довоенной, и послевоенной все еще ждут воздаяния, не возмездия, а хотя бы соболезнования и признания. Я рад тому, что долг этот выполняют каждый по-своему. Нельзя оценить добро и реальное движение нынешних перемен в отрыве от всего того немилосердно тяжкого, что досталось нашим отцам и нам самим. Одно дело – реабилитация перед законом, а другое – воздать должное жертвам. Справедливость – это очень много значит для духовного здоровья. Сколько их внуков и правнуков мечтают, чтобы гибель их отцов не замалчивалась. В этом милосердии и к ушедшим, в этом милосердие и к ушедшим, и к нам живущим. Daniel Ganin is a member of the generation of what the Soviet people call the Great Patriotic War. <clears throat> and like most members of that generation, 
he is a man for whom that war has remained a preoccupation. As one discovers when one visits the Soviet Union, the people there are far more preoccupied with that war than we are. Although we fought a common enemy and our stake in survival was every bit as urgent as theirs was. I think that the reason that the Russian memory of World War II is still strong, still haunting, while ours is either fading or non-existent, has to do with two factors which I want to mention at risk of stating truths which to some people at least may have grown stale with repetition. The first of these is that the war was fought on Russian soil and involved the destruction of Russian cities and the annihilation of Russian citizens. Our World War II was fought thousands of miles away in places like Salerno and Normandy and Tarawa, where the going was rough, but where American civilians were not involved and suffered neither death nor deprivation. I still find it hard to believe that in a letter I have in my possession written to me in 1943 when I was in the Marines from someone back home, the chief complaint was the difficulty of obtaining bacon more than once a week. This was at a time when untold thousands of Russians were eating roots and acorns or falling dead of starvation. The other fact, factor has to do with the sheer magnitude of the war and the impact of its horror and devastation. Statistics are somewhat or sometimes derided as meaningless, but often they can speak <coughs> volumes, as we writers say. Let me briefly quote some comparative statistics. The official number of military, military deaths for all United States services in World War II was 290,000. This is certainly an appalling figure by any standard, even by the standard of Vietnam, of which we are intensely conscious of at the moment, perhaps mainly for the reason that it was a morally disgraceful war and continues to lacerate our conscience. In World War II, which may be considered a morally upright war, if there is any such a thing, we suffered nearly sixfold the deaths of Vietnam and considerably less than half the time, but of course on a geographical scale of far greater dimension. Let us stand in awe of that number, 290,000. It is, it is a staggering toll. And like many of my generation who were in that war, I salute the memory of my fallen friends. But let us compare this figure with that of the military deaths incurred by the Russians during the same war. Seven and a half million. This seems nearly inconceivable. It is the population of the entire city of New York, twice the population of the city of Moscow, a figure that numbs the mind. Even so, and when this is said, nothing really prepares us for the stupefying statistic concerning the number of Russian civilian deaths. It is conservatively estimated to have been more than 12 million. 
by enemy action, by random slaughter and execution, and by starvation. Perhaps only connoisseurs of exquisite irony can appreciate the number of civilian deaths incurred in the continental United States as a result of enemy action. It is five. They were the hapless victims of an experimental Japanese balloon which exploded in 1944 in an Oregon forest killing some inquisitive picnickers. Can anyone really wonder then why war and its horrible actuality continues to animate the imagination of so many Soviet writers? Daniel Granin spent the nearly two and a half years of the siege of Leningrad on the front lines outside the city. During that time, two-thirds of the population of that city of three and a half million met their deaths by Nazi bombardment, by freezing, starvation, and disease. Those who remained alive were often reduced to eating rats, roots, and even the starch they could scavenge from, scavenge from the paste of old wallpaper. When I asked Ganyan what he ate as a soldier during the 900 days helping to defend the city, uh, he fixed me with a humorous stare and quietly murmured, nothing. Granyan, uh, the uh, biographical information on Granyan has been given to you by uh, Tony Morrison just now, so I'll skip what I had uh, written. I did want to say, though, that the authority of his writing and its moral force have accorded him enormous readership and respect throughout the Soviet Union. Might also add that in the 1950s, he was anticipating the future and endangering his own security by advocating forms of the uh, of glasnost, uh, which has so recently burst on the scene. Ganyan told me that during the siege of Leningrad, those who survived the best were the ones who strove the hardest to aid their fallen comrades who worked the most valiantly to help the sick and the dying, the ones who, in short, exhibited most tellingly the quality of mercy, uh, which he pleads for in the essay that he just read and which I'm now going to read in an English translation by Nina Buis. Uh, last year I had an accident. I was walking down the street when I slipped and fell. I fell badly. It couldn't have been worse. My face hit the curb, breaking my nose, and my shoulder was dislocated, leaving my arm dangling. This was around 7 in the evening, in the middle of Leningrad, on Kurovsky Prospect, not far from my house. With great difficulty, I got up and wandered into the nearest alleyway, trying to staunch the bleeding with my handkerchief. I realized I was in shock that the pain was getting worse, and I had to do something fast. I couldn't even talk because my mouth was smashed. I decided to head back home. I walked down the street and I don't think I was staggering. I remember the trip well, about 400 yards. The street was crowded. I was passed by a woman with a little girl, a couple, an elderly woman, a man, some teenagers. They all stared at me with curiosity at first and then looked away. If only one of them had come up to me and asked what the matter was, if I needed any help. I memorized the faces of many of the people, apparently out of unconscious attention and acute expectation of help. 
Pain muddled my consciousness, but I knew that if I were to lie down on the sidewalk then, people would calmly step over me. I had to get to the house. No one helped me. Later, I thought about the incident. Could people have taken me for a drunkard? I doubt it. I don't think I gave that impression, but even if they had, they could see that I was bleeding, that something had happened to me, that I had either fallen on or been beaten. Uh, that I had either fallen or been beaten. Why didn't they help? Why didn't they at least ask what was wrong? Does this mean that we've grown accustomed to passing by, not wasting time and energy, not getting involved? As I bitterly recall those people, I was angry at first, blamed them, wondered about them, and then I started thinking about myself. I looked for similar behavior on my own part. It's easy to reproach others when you're in trouble, but you must think of your own behavior too. I can't say that I had come across exactly the same situation, but I had experienced something similar, the desire to get away, to not get involved. I began to realize how habitual that feeling was in our lives, how firmly rooted it had become. I won't presume to list all the causes of the weakening of this feeling of mutual help, mutual responsibility, but I think that, e e that much of it is due to various kinds of social injustice when lies and shams and greed passed unpunished. It took place before people's eyes then and had a severely detrimental effect on their spiritual health. It began indifference to one's work and to the loss of, all, loss of all inhibitions. Why shouldn't I? What we so gently call lack of spirituality and indifference began to flourish. Naturally, this had to have an effect on the relations among people, on their demands on one another, on mutual aid, Falsehood entered into family life. Everything is interrelated because a person's morality does not consist of isolated rules of life. And that spirit of being joined, of, of lending a helping hand, of mutual concern which had remained from the war, the spirit of na national unity was abating. Our voluminous discourses on morality are often much too general. Morality consists of concrete things, specific feelings, qualities, concepts. One of these feelings is the feeling of mercy. For most people, it is an old-fashioned term, unpopular today and somehow removed from our lives. Something echoing the olden days, sister of mercy, brother of mercy. These are words for, for uh, nurse that the dictionary marks OBS, that is obsolete concepts. There once was a Mercy Street in Leningrad near Aptekarsky Island. It was felt that the name was obsolete even for a street, and it was renamed Textiles Street. <clears throat> the recent tragedy in Chernobyl shook up our people in the national soul. The disaster elicited the kindest, most heartfelt emotions, and people volunteered help financially and in every way they could Donations to the fund to aid victims of the accident raised 530 million rubles. This is an enormous sum, but the important aspect here is the response itself. People willingly took children into their homes, shared everything they had. The same response came to the recent disaster in Georgia where there were mudslides and flooding. This is an example of national mercy 
the charity which was always characteristic of our people, people whose houses burned down were always helped this way, as were people in times of hunger and bad harvests. But Chernobyl and floods and earthquakes are extreme situations. Mercy and compassion are needed much more frequently in our normal daily life, person to person. I am convinced that man is born with the ability to respond to another's pain. I think this is innate, given to us along with instincts and the soul. But if the feeling is not used, not exercised, it weakens and atrophies. Is mercy exercised in our life? Is there a constant reminder for it? Does it often get called upon? I remember how when I was a child and my, fa and my father and I passed a beggar, and there were many beggars in my childhood, blind, crippled, or just asking for a handout in trains, railroad stations, marketplaces. Father would give me a copper coin and say, go give it to him. And I would overcome my fear, poverty often looked rather scary, and go give it to the coin, go give the coin. Sometimes I would have to overcome my greed. I wanted to keep the money. We were rather poor ourselves. Father never considered whether they were pretending or not, whether they were truly crippled or not. He didn't care if they were begging. He gave. As I understood it now, as I understand it, this was practice in mercy and charity, that necessary practice without which the feeling cannot survive. After my accident, I had to spend some time in the hospital. This was a very ordinary old city hospital for emergency care. Since it was old, it wasn't exactly ordinary because it was and still is in terrible disrepair. The building was sagging, the first floor was shaky, there was no hot water, and there were rats. I won't name this hospital because marvelous, enthusiastic doctors work there who can last only in hospitals like that. I don't want to get, in, uh, get them into trouble because as a rule, it is they and not the administrators who get called on the carpet. But pain kept me awake that night. I wandered along the corridor. The long hallway was filled with cots for patients. There wasn't enough space in the wards. Men and women were not separated. They moaned and tossed and turned. Some wanted to go to the bathroom. Some wanted a drink. It reminded me of a frontline hospital after a battle. With one difference, there were no orderlies. This has been a long-standing problem, not only in Leningrad. In trauma services, the ratio is 90 patients to one orderly. That is, there were supposed to be four, but they don't exist. There were no helpers at all that night. <laughs> I gave water to some and I turned over some patients in casts. An old woman called me over. She asked me to sit with her. She told me that she was afraid. She spoke of her family, who were far away, and about her hard and lonely life. She took my hand. She stopped talking. I thought she was asleep. She had died. Her hand grew cold. I had seen all kinds of deaths at the front. People dying in hospitals is inevitable. But this death astounded me. This woman, tormented by loneliness in the face of death, called over a stranger. It hadn't matter whom. It must have been unbearable for her, a horrible punishment. I don't know for what, just to be able to lean against someone. How can we fit together concern for humanity, free medicine, humanism and a collective life with this woman who had worked all her life dying in such neglect. Is this not our common shame and guilt? The devout have a sacrament of confession and communion, of release 
of sins. A person feels the incoming. <clears throat> it is easier when there is someone near him filled with compassion and, and attention, if not a relative, then at least a stranger. To be able to hold someone's hand at the instant of farewell, to say your final word to someone so that it is heard, if only to a sister of mercy, a brother of mercy, who are OBS, obsolete in our society. At moments like that, mercy is a measure of public humanity. Perhaps it is only in war literature that the theme of humanity and mercy sounded strongly, consistently. Calling for mercy for the fallen, inculcating this feeling, returning to it, calling for it, is a persistent need that is hard to estimate. I am convinced that our literature, especially today, cannot turn away from Pushkin's legacy. Doors must be unsealed. History is inseparable. You cannot pluck out just the sweet and the light from it. The sorrows of our history, pre-war, post-war, still await recreation, not revenge, but compassion and recognition. I am glad that people are carrying out this duty, each in his own way. Goodness and kindness and the real movement of today's changes cannot be appreciated outside the context of all the unmerciful hardships of our fathers and ourselves. Rehabilitation under the law is one thing, but giving their due to the victims, the people who suffered innocently, is another. Historical justice means a lot for spiritual health. How many grandsons and great-grandsons dream of ending the silence around the death of their forefathers? That would be a mercy for the, part, for the departed and for us, the living. We sang the praises of heroes, of people who overcame difficulties, who were fearless fighters. But where are the works about the people who cannot overcome the injustices and hardships of life, who have fallen into despair? There were so many around us, but literature did not extend a hand to them. It merely attacked them, criticized the failure, the fallen. The idea that misery and suffering were inappropriate for our people was so strong that they tried to depict even the blockade of Leningrad as a series of exploits and heroic actions. Leningrad could not be described as the city of our suffering, of the untold tortures brought by the war. It would be too easy to place all the blame on our literature, which has suffered enough as it is, but it cannot go unsaid either. These sad lines cannot be erased. We cannot forget that ever since the quiet dawn, the great agitating call for mercy for the fallen, the voice of mercy has sounded more and more rarely. In our post-war literature, we cannot find lines of sympathy for the nationalities who are little sympathy for the millions who suffered innocently during the fascist occupation, the millions who suffered in prison camps. Literature cannot be denied the right to compassion. Of course, we can hide behind the shield of history. We can say that if it wasn't allowed, people didn't write. But the examples of Bulgakov, Akhmatova, and Platonov, just two or three writers, shows that it was possible not to be afraid. When this theme began returning to the literature of recent years, it was heard by all. Just think of Kondratyev's Sashka. Recall the poems of Osnesensky, of Dushenko, of Kuzarova, Biakov's Sign of Disaster. 
Now others have taken up that long-awaited theme which is needed to humanize our life. We must call people to it, stir up their conscience, cure the deafness of their souls, so that man will stop devouring the life allotted to him, giving nothing in return and sacrificing nothing. Abdulovich Iskander will read and will be followed by um, Robert Stone. прочитать небольшой отрывок хочу в двух словах сказать о, о двух наблюдениях которые я сделал летя из москвы в америку before I start reading the short excerpt from my book let me say a couple of words about two observations I made uh, on my flight from Moscow to America Я летел через Италию. I flew through Italy. И когда мы приземлились в Риме, я вдруг услышал гром аплодисментов. Оказывается, для итальянцев самолет, севший на аэродроме, приятная неожиданность. And when we, when we landed in Rome, uh, there was a burst of applause. Apparently, Italians feel that when an airplane lands safely, it's an unexpected pleasure. Мы, например, к сожалению, не умеем так радоваться жизни. We can't take that kind of pleasure from life ourselves. Надо учиться этому. You've got to learn how to do this. Если нашему человеку скажешь, видишь, как хорошо все, самолет наш сел. If you tell one of us, look how good things are, the airplane landed. Он скажет, конечно, летчик эгоист. He'll say, of course, the pilot's an egoist. Если бы он не сидел внутри самолета, что бы с нами было? But if he wasn't there, think how bad things would be for us. Второе открытие состоит в том, что я взял с собой в дорогу самоучитель английского языка. The second point I want to mention is that I took a, a little English self-taught book with me on the way. Но оказывается, чем больше скорость, тем тупее делается человек. But it seems that the faster you move through space, the dumber you get. Так что мой хороший совет студентам никогда в полете не готовиться к экзаменам. That's why you, in the Soviet Union you never study for exams when you're on an airplane. По-видимому, 
человеческий ум работает лучше всего, когда, он, когда человек движется со скоростью земного шара. Но в этом вообще драма цивилизации, я об этом не буду говорить. Я небольшой отрывок прочитаю из Сандро из Чегема. Отрывок глава о Сталине. It's the chapter on Stalin. Тоже драма нашей цивилизации. Also a drama of our civilization. Здесь описывается ночное пиршество в Гаграх. Это курортный район Абхазии. It's a uh, description of a feast, of a banquet in uh, Gagra, which is a uh, resort in uh, Abkhazia. И, ну, в общем, это пиршество, описание его я слышал от участников. It's, uh, the description is based upon descriptions, which I gathered from people who were there. Не, не, не Сталина, конечно, и не других правительственных лиц. Not, of course, from Stalin himself. А там танцевал ансамбль э, песен и плясок. Э, некоторые из э, участников этого ансамбля до последнего времени были живы, и они рассказывали, что там было. But there was a performance by a folk dance group of the area, and uh, some of them were still alive when I gathered material for this book, and they told me what happened. И, значит, рассказывается о том, как э, наш замечательный революционер и партизан Нестор Лакоба, которого впоследствии отравил Берия, стрелял по яйцу, поставленному на голову повара. They told me about uh, how the uh, famous partisan Nestor Lukava, who later poisoned Beria, was the man who at that... who was later, sorry, poisoned by Beria at that time, <laughs> shot shot an egg off the head of a cook at that banquet. Вот они готовятся, значит, и это по просьбе Сталина. Редкое удовольствие для него. They are preparing for this now, and this was given at the request of Stalin, a rare treat for that man. Нестор Аполлонович, повар здесь, сказал он, склонившись над ним и показывая содержимое тарелки. В тарелке, слегка перекатываясь, лежало с полдюжины яиц. Хорошо, сказал Лакоба и хмуро посмотрел в тарелку. Тут только дядя Сандро догадался, что Нестор Аполлонович будет стрелять по яйцам. Этого он еще не видел. Индюшкины яйца, вдруг спросил Берия и, протянув руку, вытащил из тарелки яйцо. Куриные, Лаврентий Павлович, подсказал директор, поближе подсовывая ему тарелку. Тогда почему такие большие? спросил Берия с любопытством, рассматривая яйцо. Яйца и в самом деле были довольно крупные. Сам выбирал, хихикнул директор, кивнув головой в сторону повара, стараясь обратить внимание Берии 
на тайный комизм этого обстоятельства. Но Берия, не обращая внимания на тайный комизм этого обстоятельства, продолжал рассматривать яйцо. Директор встревожился. «Может, заменить Лаврентий Павлович?» – спросил он. «Нет, я просто так говорю», – опомнился Берия и быстро положил яйцо в тарелку. «Ревнует глухому», – шепнул Сталин Калинину и беззвучно рассмеялся в усы. Калинин в ответ затряс бородкой. «В этом углу, по-моему, лучше», — сказал Лакоба, оглядывая люстру и кивая на в противоположный тому, где стоял повар угол. Так фотограф перед началом съемки старается найти лучший эффект освещения. «Совершенно верно», — подтвердил директор. «Волнуется?» — кивнул Лакоба на повара. «Немножко», — сказал директор, низко склонившись к уху Лакобы. «Успокой его», — сказал Нестор Аполлонович, слегка отстраняясь от директора, поза которого слишком назойливо подчеркивала его глухоту. Повар все еще стоял у дверей с безучастным подопытным выражением на лице. Дядя Сандро только сейчас заметил, что он в одной руке сжимает колпак. Пальцы этой руки все время шевелились. Директор подошел к повару, что-то шепнул ему, и они оба направились к противоположному углу. Директор важно нес впереди себя тарелку с яйцами. Стало тихо. Смысл предстоящего теперь был всем ясен. Прохрустев на крахмаленным халатом, повар остановился в углу, повернувшись лицом к залу. «Если б только э, ты знала, как я ненавижу это», — шепнула сарья, поворачиваясь к Нине. Та ничего не ответила. Широко раскрытыми глазами она смотрела в угол. Повар стоял, плотно прислонившись к стене. Директор ему беспрерывно что-то говорил, а повар кивал головой. Лицо его приняло мучной цвет. Директор выбрал из тарелки яйцо, и повар теперь не шевеля головой, а только скосив на него белые, как бы отдельно от лица плавающие глаза, следил за его движениями. Директор стал ставить ему на голову яйцо, но то ли сам волновался, то ли яйцо попалось неустойчивое, оно никак не хотело становиться на папа. Нестор Аполлонович нахмурился. Вдруг повар, продолжая неподвижно стоять, приподнял руку, нащупал яйцо, прищурился своими белыми отдельно плавающими глазами, поймал точку равновесия и плавно опустил руку. Яйцо стояло на голове. Теперь он, вытянувшись, замер в углу, и если бы не выражение глаз, он был бы похож на призывника, которому меряют рост. Директор быстро посмотрел вокруг, не находя, куда поставить тарелку с яйцами, и вдруг, словно испугавшись, что стрельба начнется до того, как он отойдет от повара, сунул ему в руку тарелку и быстро отошел к дверям. Лакова вытащил из кобуры пистолет и, осторожно опустив дуло, взвел курок. Он оглянулся на Сталина и Калинина, стараясь стоять так, чтобы им все было видно. Дяде Сандро пришлось сойти с места. Он встал за стулом Сарии, ухватившись руками за спинку. Дядя Сандро очень волновался. Лакоба вытащил руку с приподнятым пистолетом и стал медленно пускать кисть. Рука оставалась неподвижной, и вдруг дядя Сандро заметил, как бледное лицо Лакобы превращается в кусок камня. Пор внезапно побелел. И в тишине стало отчетливо слышно, как яйца позвякивают в тарелке, которую он держал в одной руке. Вдруг дядя Сандро заметил, как по лицу повара брызнуло что-то желтое, и только потом услышал выстрел. «Браво, Нестор!» – закричал Сталин и забил в ладони. 
Гром рукоплесканий прозвучал как разряд облегчения. Директор подбежал к повару, выхватил у него из рук колпак, вытер щеку повара, облитую желтком, и сунул колпак в карман его халата. Он оглянулся на Лакову, как оглядываются на стрельбище, чтобы показать, куда попал стрелявший, или попросить, или спросить, надо ли подготовить мишень к очередному выстрелу. «Давай», — кивнул Лакоба. Директор на этот раз быстро поставил яйцо на голову повара и, хрустнув с корлупой разбитого яйца, отошел к дверям. И снова лицо Лакобы превратилось в кусок камня, вынут, вытянутая рука окаменела, и только кисть, как часовой механизм с тупой стрелкой ствола, медленно опускалась вниз. И опять на этот раз дядя Сандро заметил сначала, как желтый фонтанчик яйца выплеснул вверх, и только потом раздался выстрел «Браво!» и взрывы рукоплесканий сотрясли банкетный зал. Улыбаясь бледной счастливой улыбкой, Лакова прятал пистолет. Повар все еще стоял в углу, медленно оживая. «Посади его за стол», — бросил Лакоба жене по Абхазке. Царя схватила салфетку и подбежала к повару. Вслед за нею подбежал и директор, которому повар теперь сердито сунул тарелку с яйцами. Сарья стояла перед ним и, вытирая ему лицо салфеткой, что-то говорила. Повар с достоинством кивал. Директор, присев на корточки и поставив рядом с собой тарелку с яйцами, подбирал скорлупу разбитых яиц. Сарья стала уводить повара, но тот вдруг остановился и, сбросив халат, кинул его директору. По-видимому, случившееся на некоторое время давало ему такие права, и он явно показывал окружающим, что он недаром рискует, а имеет за это немалые выгоды. Когда директор с халатом, перекинутым через плечо и с тарелкой в руке, быстро проходил к дверям, дядя Сандро с удивлением подумал, что повар и директор могли бы заменить друг друга, потому что многое в этой жизни решает случай. Царя посадила повара между последним из второстепенных вождей, незнакомых дяди Сандре Сандро по портретам и первым из секретарей райкомов. Сарья налила повару фужер коньяка, придвинула тарелку, плеснула в нее ореховой подливы, положила кусок индюшатины. Повар сразу же выпил и сейчас оглядывал стол, оглядывая стол, важно кивал на какие-то слова, которые ему говорила Сарья. Когда Нестор Аполлонович спрятал пистолет и повернулся к столу, Сталин стоял на ногах, раскрыв объятия. Нестор Аполлонович, смущенно улыбаясь, подошел к нему. Сталин обнял его и поцеловал в лоб. «Мой Вильгельм Тел, сказал он, и, неожиданно что-то вспомнив, обернулся к Ворошилову. «А ты кто такой?» «Я Ворошилов», — сказал Ворошилов довольно твердым. «Я спрашиваю, кто из вас Ворошиловский стрелок?» — спросил Сталин. И дядя Сандро опять почувствовал неловкость. «Ох, не надо бы, — подумал он, — расстрелять Ворошилова против нашего Лакобы!» «Конечно, он лучше стреляет», — сказал Ворошилов примирительно. «Тогда почему ты выпячиваешься, как Ворошиловский стрелок?» Спросил Сталин и сел, предвкушая удовольствие долгого казуистического издевательства. Секретари, секретари райкомов, с трудом поднимая тяжелевшие брови, начинали удивленно прислушиваться. Лакова потихоньку отошел и сел на место. 
«Ну, хватит, Иосиф!» — сказал Ворошилов, покрываясь пунцовыми пятнами и глядя на Сталина умоляющими глазами. «Хватит, Иосиф!» — сказал Сталин, укоризненно глядя на Ворошилова. «Говорят, оппортунисты всего мира. Ты тоже начинаешь?» Ворошилов, опустив голову, краснел и надувался. «Скажи, чтобы начали его любимую», — шепнул Нестор жене. Царя тихо встала и прошла к середине стола, где сидел Махаз. Лакоба знал, что это один из способов восстановить внезапные мрачные капризы вождя. Махаз затянул старинную грузинскую застольную «Гапринди шаумерц хали лети, черная ласточка». В это время Ворошилов, подняв голову, попытался что-то сказать Сталину, но тот вдруг поднял руки в умоляющем жесте, мол, оставьте меня в покое, дайте послушать песню. Сталин сидел тяжело, опершись головой на одну руку и сжимая в другой потухшую трубку. Нет, не власть, не кровь врага, ни вино никогда не давали ему такого наслаждения, всерастворяющей нежностью, мужеством всепокорности, которого он в жизни никогда не испытывал не испытывал, песня эта, как всегда, освобождала его душу от гнета вечной настороженности. Но не так освобождала, как освобождал азарт страсти и борьбы, потому что как только азарт страсти кончался гибелью врага, начиналось похмелье, и тогда победа источала трупный яд побежденных. Нет, песня по-другому освобождала его душу, она окрашивала всю его жизнь в какой-то фантастический свет судьбы, в котором его личные дела превращались в дело судьбы, где нет ни палачей, ни жертв, но есть движение судьбы, история и траурная необходимость занимать в этой процессе свое место. И что с того, что ему предназначено занимать в этой процессе самое страшное – и потому самое величественное место лети, черная ласточка, лети. regret that time doesn't permit uh, us to do justice to the uh, translation of this marvelous book, uh, which is, I think, very well translated in, uh, in English by uh, Susan Brownsberger. This is available, this book, and a wonderful book it is. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, available from Vintage Books, an artist's edition of Vintage Books. It's called Sandro of Chagem in English. Uh, let me read you a little bit of what the, uh, a reviewer in the New Republic said about this book. I've just had the pleasure of reading it uh, just all at once yesterday, and I can tell you it is an incomparably droll book. It is, it is quite something, very funny. Of all the writers in the USSR, Fazili Skander is surely the one whose works can best survive translation and cult cultural export. One can easily imagine him becoming a bestseller in this country. This is somewhat paradoxical because though he writes in Russian, Iskander comes from a tiny nation that few Americans have ever heard of, Abkhazia. 
this so-called republic lies between Georgia, beside Georgia on the Black Sea. As the world will discover sooner or later, Iskander is the Gabriel Garcia Marquez of Abkhazia. <laughs> the major work of Iskander's life is a novel called Sandro of Chagem. In a series of semi-independent tales, Iskander tells the story of an 80, uh, uh, the 80-year-old story of Uncle Sandro from the 1880s to the 1960s. This is a wonderful read and very rewarding to anyone who undertakes it, and I think the English, uh, the English version is quite good. Uh, I'm going to, ha I've made a couple of internal cuts to conform to time. Uh, as I say, I can't possibly render the, you know, the, the, this, even this one anecdotal section. Please bear with me. I want to give you some morceau choisi, uh, and I don't know if I can do much better than that. After three hours of wild driving, the Buick stopped in Old Gagra at the gates of a sanatorium on one of the quiet green streets. It was getting on toward evening. Uncle Sandro was nervous, suspecting he might be late. He ran into the gatehouse and went to a little lighted window behind which a woman was sitting. A pass, he said, shoving his passport through the long tunnel of the bay window. The woman looked at his passport, checked it against some sort of list, then glanced critically at Uncle Sandro several times, trying to detect alien features in his face. Every time she looked at him, Uncle Sandro froze, trying not, not to let any alien features materialize, <laughs> setting his face in an expression of nonchalant likeness to himself. The woman wrote out his pass. Uncle Sandro grew more and more agitated, sensing that this strict check-in process implied the nerve-wracking exhilaration of an encounter with the leader. With the pass and his passport in one hand and his suitcase in the other, he quickly crossed the deserted courtyard of the sanatorium and halted at the entrance where he was met by the policeman on duty. For some reason, the latter stared long and hard at his pass, checking it against his passport. The Abkhazian ensemble, Uncle Sandro said, by implication stressing the peaceful nature of his visit. The policeman made no reply. Keeping the passport in his hand, he shifted his gaze to the suitcase. Uncle Sandro nodded joyfully in response to indicate that he fully understood how crucial the moment was. He briskly opened the suitcase and took out his Cherkeska, his Asiatic boots, his riding breeches, his Caucasian belt and dagger, laying them all at his feet. As he took out each article, Uncle Sandro honorably shook it, thus providing an opportunity for any ill-meant object that might be there to fall out. When he got down to the belt and dagger, Uncle Sandro smiled and slid it out of the scabbard a little way, as if distantly suggesting its utter uselessness for regicide, even if such an insane idea were to arise in some insane mind. The policeman followed his movements attentively and nodded curtly, as if acknowledging the fact of the dagger's uselessness and cutting off all possibility of discussion on this point. Uncle Sandro put all the things back in the suitcase, closed it, and was at the point of reaching for his passport and pass, but the policeman stopped him again. Are you Sandro Chegemba, he asked. Yes, Uncle Sandro said. With a flash of insight, he added. But on the posters, I'm Sandro Chegemski. Posters don't interest me, the policeman said. Without inviting Uncle Sandro to pass, he took a shiny new telephone from the wall and started calling someone. So he's passed in uh, to, the, to join the rest of the people at the folk ensemble, and they get a lecture from the, uh, from the manager uh, before they are to perform before Stalin. The main thing is, Ponsulaya said, when you're invited, don't jump at the food and wine. Behave modestly, but you don't have to play hard to get either. If one of the leaders invites you to have a drink, drink it, and then go back to your comrades. Do not, especially if you're chewing, stand beside the leader as if you'd stormed the Winter Palace with him. <laughs> Remember, there isn't going to be any stage, Ponsulaya was saying, pacing back and forth among his charges in his white Cherkeska. You'll be dancing right on the floor. The floor is there the same as here. The main thing is, don't get nervous. The leaders are people, just like us, only much better. 
Within a few seconds, the troop members had flitted into the hall and lined up in two rows, blinded by bright lights. The plenteous table and the vastness of the crowd. The banquet was at its height. Everything had happened so fast that not everyone noticed they were in the hall. At first, isolated claps, then a joyous squall of applause greeted the 20 Cyprus-like knights who had sprung up from nowhere, led by Platon Pansulaya. It was manifest that those who were applauding had eaten and drunk well and were now pleased to have their merriment prolonged by dint of art in order that they might later return to fresh merriment at the table. Regaining their wits, the troop members tried to spot Comrade Stalin, but did not immediately locate him because they were looking into the depths of the hall, whereas Comrade Stalin was sitting quite close to them, right at the end of the table. He was facing slightly away toward his neighbor, who turned out to be all union headman Kalinin. The applause continued. The troop members began to applaud, the roar of their love forcing its way through to the very source of love, through the countering roar of governmental affection. Stalin suddenly got to his feet, and the whole hall rumblingly followed suit, everyone trying to catch up with him before he could straighten up. It lasted about a minute, this, this bloodless battle of mutual affection, like the friendly uproar of chums slapping each other on the back. A silly lover's skirmish where the conquered thanked the conqueror and then lovingly conquered him, toppling his wave of roars with a new wave of roars. The dancers continued to applaud while talking back and forth as they were accustomed to, without turning to each other. There's Comrade Stalin. Where, where? Talking to Kalinin. Look, for Ashilov, he's short too. And who's that? Beria's wife. The leaders are all short. Stalin, Voroshilov, Beria, Lakova. I wonder why. Lenin was short. That's how it got started. Now we'll hear from Mr. Dmitry Mikhailovich Uranov. And I wanted also to suggest that I think it would be a pity not to follow these extraordinary readings um, with um, a period of discussion and question as uh, is indicated on your program. And uh, I'm sure you are all eager to speak to these writers. And uh, they are equally as eager to answer your questions. The only reason I make an observation about it is that I will not be here to moderate it, but I'm sure you can carry on without me. But right now, I want you to, um, as I will, pay close attention to Mr. Uranov. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have got with me here my uh, collected works. I'm sure you would like to have them complete, uh, to read them from the very beginning till the very end. Uh, the first volume, but certainly it's, it's only selection, the first volume is literary criticism, Anglo-American mostly. Uh, I would like to read uh, from it a chapter or two for you which will take about an hour and a half. <laughs> Certainly, I have to leave uh, uh, a lot of material out of it. For example, 
chapter one, which is tradition and reevaluation, which are mostly based upon T.S. Eliot views. And uh, what I have to leave out is my connection with a lady who came out to be the daughter of the member of provisional government of Russia in 1917. And she met Elliot, uh, she emigrated, and she met Elliot in the 1920s, and uh, she said to him uh, uh, that she would like to go straight to bed with him. Uh, and T.S. Elliot said, well, we should consider it. And it never happened. <laughs> then he died. <laughs> so uh, the second chapter is interpretation and evaluation. <laughs> and it's based mostly on our Richard's uh, co concept of interpretation. I had a chance to talk to him by phone personally. And I said that I'm going to criticize him heavily. He died next year. <laughs> and my third chapter is uh, close reading, which I uh, uh, cover uh, Professor F.R. Leedy's uh, concepts. And I've been to his house. He was dying upstairs, <laughs> and me uh, dealing with Queenie Lewis, his wife and she was going to give me a lunch. So I told her, are you going to give me lunch still if I say that I'm against your husband? She said, yes, you can eat and go. <laughs> this is my first folly. My second, <laughs> my second is horse stories. Uh, well, I'm a kind, I, I, I cannot uh, compare it uh, from the point of literary merit, but still, I'm a kind of Soviet Dick Francis, who is a friend of mine. <laughs> and Dick, coming to the country to gather material to make another novel of his, asked me if you stay with your back behind British Embassy which direction Moscow River flows. I live on the bank side, and I cross the river every day my whole life, which consists of 51 years. And I said to him, Dick, it's a very typical Western question. I'll give you a very typical Russian answer. I never know. <laughs> I never paid any attention. But do you need it? for dead bodies flow down the river. Yes, he said. So if you read Trial Run, which is based upon Russia, you find my recommendation. <laughs> now, I read to you from my own book, a horse book, which is horses in the ocean, and it is based upon my experience while I was traveling in 1968, delivering as a horse trainer. A governmental present to Midwest tycoon 
and Lane Peace Prize winner, Mr. Sayasi. So, I, uh, and the uh, stories, Russian coachman and American cowboy. And the section is on real things. On my way across the ocean with the Troika, I was ready to answer a very possible question. What would you like to see here in the United States? If they ask, I shall say, cowboy. Once among them, we, and we were two of us, a vet, and myself a trainer and a vet. So, and once among them, we realized that they have stepped straight from the cinema screen or from the pages of a Western novel. Five-gallon hats, haunted saddles. High-heeled boots, chaps, rubs. But from them, there was a certain air of aloofness towards us. <laughs> they were just polite, not actually friendly. What's the matter? Are we all not? horsemen together. <laughs> now, who are you then? <laughs> we are cowboys. But what is the difference? We have horses, you have horse. And then, one of them Truman by name made a statement. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, he began. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. We are cowboys and you are horses. You treat your animals your way. And we deal with ours in our own way. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to say that ours is better. I'm not going to make everybody like Western style. But if you want to write in your way, then perhaps you should stick to a different bunch of people. Perhaps, in fact, you should stay at a different place where the same kind of, of, okay, he was evidently looking for a softer kind of word, but he no doubt meant trifles. Don't get me wrong. He burst out and almost prayed. I'm not going to insult anybody, but according to Truman, 
those riding out in shirt strips and keeping monkey seed were not those who created America. You might have thought, he went on, that cowboys are like that, as they are shown in the movies, as if they are always go around shooting people. <laughs> it was never like that, according to Truman. Yes, they were shooting, but mostly into the air. <laughs> they stayed with cattle, the cattle, at remote, lonely places. And when they came down to town for a break, they were shooting into the air for some kind of publicity. They also shot at bobcats and coyotes. Any cowboy woman was able to defend herself and her baby with a weapon on arm in her hampers. Thus spoke the cowboy. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, he said. I'm not going to make everybody in the world ride and live Western style. We have a saying, it is horse flesh that warms a cowboy best of all. My horse, Hetty Hardy, doesn't have to have any golden lettered diploma or certificate which your horses have. We don't have to have anything like that. But when I've been approached by someone who asked me to sell him, I said, no. I said, no, and nothing else. Because my happy hearty, for me, is a kind of, is a kind of, there was no chance to speak about that anymore. <laughs> and in the real cowboy's eyes, something like real tears somehow twinkled. And it was not possible to go on talking about the situation any longer. We swore there and then to adapt Western writing and take up cowboy, cowboy ship from now and forever. <laughs> to commemorate my conversion with him, Truman made up his mind to present me with a robe. I was thinking hard, he told me, whether I should buy you a new rope or just to give you a used one. He decided upon a used rope, it will remind you, he said as he explained his choice. It will remind, oh yes, and how it did. It seemed to be a real rope in every sense 
polished at one end, and by many generations of cowboy hands, and on the other trodden bare with the necks of many cattle. And it smelled especially strong. Its smell was so real and I would say so convincing <laughs> that with your eyes shut, you could easily imagine yourself to be on a farm or even inside the barn itself. <laughs> In fact, the rope's authenticity would have convinced anybody with their eyes open, as was the moment I entered the plane on my way back from North Dakota. All the passengers began to look at me with awe and anxiety, as if the whole herd was going to follow me. And the gentleman whom I sat next turned to me and commented, well, why on earth not to bring your cow right here? <laughs> and he pointed to the seat, which was still vacant. In a New York hotel, shortly after I arrived there, I was called to the desk and reprimanded by the administrator. Sir, in accordance with the rules of our hotel, it is absolutely forbidden to have harmful material with you in your room. And the chambermaid complained that she was afraid to clean your room for fear of risking her life. But there's nothing poisonous in my room. It is just a normal room. A present for a cowboy. Can't help it, sir. Remove it. The maid will not tolerate that. I found a friend who worked in our embassy, and he was willing to help. He said, put it into the trunk of my car. I shall try to deliver it through diplomatic channels. I thought this to be a lucky break for me, but on the contrary, instead, almost an international incident took place. My friend took the rope to the embassy, and that is where it happened. Why does our embassy stink? It must be a conspiracy. Such was the common cry. At that moment, I was already at Princeton and was traced there by our embassy staff. They gave me my rope back. For a time, it was kept there at Princeton by someone else, an American friend of mine, a colleague, who was the head of the rare books department in the university library. Such a smell of the rope, together with rare books, was almost bearable, but not for long. Finally, the rope 
was transported in a sealed container by surface mail. That is to say, on board of a cargo ship. It was a slow process. I held it in my hands about three months later at home. The same rule. Dear present of a dear friend, but it has lost its smell. <laughs> it had dried out, evaporated. I could not make anybody believe that it was the rope of our dreams, such romantic dreams. Almost everybody to whom I dared to show the rope said, well, what this has this got to do with cowboys? <laughs> and in response to my desperate attempt to prove it was the genuine article, the authentic rope from the Wild West, they just went on laughing at me, perhaps. We are not so much experienced as you are with the West. But don't try to tell us that this most ordinary piece of string has ever been lying anywhere near a lasso. <laughs> Question and answer period if you want to remain in your seats. Okay, we're now going to have a brief. We've had a we've had uh, a long long reading, so we're going to have to keep the question and answer session brief. Uh, the the uh, uh, people at the rostrum here will uh, try to answer your questions. So let me call on you for questions, sir. Yes. question to Mr. Granin. Uh, what was the response on, uh, <clears throat> on his uh, article uh, in newspaper? And I asked him to give uh, several opinions, opposite opinions uh, uh, in, on that matter. Унижает советского человека. И если милосердие устаревшее понятие, то значит 
и не надо его возобновлять. А другие говорили, что надо организовать общество милосердия. Что-то вроде вот у нас давно не было, а после революции не было этих филантропических обществ. Надо организовать такие общества. Третьи говорили, что у нас другие есть более актуальные задачи. Но сейчас в Ленинграде и в Москве снизу вот какие-то молодежные объединения начинают создавать общество милосердия. But now in Moscow and Leningrad, certain uh, from, sort of from, from below, uh, youth groups are being formed for this purpose of uh, occupying themselves with charitable activities. It's interesting that this is being organized not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Questions? Yes. Uh, yes, sir. Go to the microphone, please. Sir. Back there. I just would like to ask Fazilis Skander to tell the history of, of, the, uh, of the publication of Sandroish in Chagamin in the Soviet Union, including th those chapters and those parts which, which, which he read here. Я очень давно начал писать, видимо, лет 20 с лишним назад. Это такая вещь по своему замыслу и построению, которую можно писать всю жизнь. Ну, частично лет, не знаю, 10 тому назад, по-моему, или 12, основные главы уже были написаны, которые я считал основными. По общему замыслу это описание жизни Абхазии с начала века до наших дней. К несчастью, я принес рукопись в редакцию в годы застоя. Так совпало. That's just how it turned out. Тогда очень много глав сократили. So they took out, excised a good many chapters from the manuscript. И издали примерно десятую часть. About one tenth 
uh, saw publication at that time. Ну, тем не менее, я ее продолжал писать и продолжаю писать. В начале нашего, нашей встречи я вас призывал к оптимизму. Относительно учебы у итальянцев. Сейчас, как вы знаете, у нас гласность. И ряд вещей, которые не печатались у меня и у многих людей, сейчас многих писателей печатаются. Так, тут вопрос еще есть о кроликах и удавах. Эту вещь я тоже написал лет 15 назад. Опять случайно совпало с годами застоя, когда я пришел в редакцию. The, uh, this uh, mention was also made of another book of mine, Rabbits and Boa Constrictors, and uh, uh, this was also written by me uh, 15 years ago, unfortunately also coinciding with the period of stagnation. Совершенно случайно. Perfectly accidental, of course. Ну вот, теперь ее опубликовали, тогда не публиковали. But now it's been published, it wasn't published then. И, значит... Некоторые люди считают, что я эту сатирическую вещь только что написал. Потому что там много говорится о борьбе с алкоголем. Но знаете, в нашей жизни есть такое свойство истина актуальная один раз актуальна всегда but uh, uh, things which are contemporary with us uh, at the present are turn out to be contemporary for, for a long time in the past as well forever, forever. 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 так что я боюсь что некоторые будут думать что так как сейчас началась критика сталина я быстро-быстро написал главу о Сталине. Some people might think that because uh, criticizing Stalin is uh, fashionable now that I suddenly wrote the chapters on Stalin. Я ее написал лет 15 назад. That chapter was written by me 15 years ago. Я думаю, что есть шанс uh, в этом году uh, uh, вообще с Андроис Чигема напечатать. I think there's a chance of getting Sandro published this year. В этом смысле многозначительные намеки я видел на лицах некоторых редакторов. I have seen very uh, uh, encouraging uh, signs and hints, uh, meaningful, uh, heavily, severely meaningful glances uh, have been directed my way from uh, various editors of publishing houses. Я думаю, так оно и будет. So I think that's how it's going to work out. Вот все. Uh, yeah. uh, first for Mr. Uronyov, about 
about your rope, I would suggest uh, first some warm water, then some liniment oil, and find yourself a Shetland pony. <laughs> I speak from experience. Can you say it again? Warm water, soak the rope for about overnight, then get yourself some horse liniment oil, rub that on that, and then get yourself a nice sweaty Shetland pony. Oh, yeah, I see. For about a week, yeah. they'll get it back. Or some convenient horse manure, they'll about the same. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> My family has several such ropes. Yeah. <laughs> Back home in Ohio. Now, for Mr. Mr. Granin, uh, from and, and this relates to your essay. Do you do you feel that perhaps that sense of collective uh, unity uh, would be in conflict with economic prosperity in, uh, within the Soviet Union? I find in the United States that doesn't necessarily uh, go along. In other words, how do you, how do the two balance out? I'm saying if, if when when things get better, you know, as as things go. I don't understand the question is uh, what uh, I I'm don't so understand the question. I'm am I'm, I'm, I'm saying is that as 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 people okay, if if things work out economically in Russia, if things got better, if hypothetically, would that Oh god, I think I've gotten into it. Uh, would would it be harder? Would it be harder for people to, to relate to a collective unity, or people draw more and more as individuals? In other words, can yuppies exist in Russia? There. <laughs> Get it like that. <laughs> Listen, let me let me let me let me let me try and have a crack at at, uh, at what I think you may be trying to ask. Are you asking that? Are, are you are you are you saying that this kind of that the comity exists in 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 Russia now because the standard of living is low, and if the standard of living improved, uh, that would would we see that mutual concern disappear? Is that your question? Right. Вы знаете, у нас немножко все иначе стоит вопрос. Не дело не в бедности, в богатстве, а дело в том, что даже и при бедности общество очень ожесточилось за последние годы. It's a little bit different uh, situation with us. It's not a question of rich versus the poor, but rather the uh, problem is that even in the presence of, uh, of a relatively poor population, uh, we that there has been a disappearance of 
of mercifulness and a general uh, severity uh, in uh, relations among people in our country. Я не думаю, что если мы будем жить все лучше и лучше, что от этого значит, милосердие будет убывать. Тут другие причины у нас есть. У нас, понимаете, своя... Вот речь идет просто о том, чтобы сейчас смягчить как-то нравы людей. We've got to soften our attitudes, uh, so to speak. И у нас началось немного это uh, движение uh, вот, милосердия, независимо от того, что uh, богатство не очень прибавляется в последние годы, но все равно uh, вот это движение за смягчение нравов, оно происходит. And in fact, this uh, process has already started. The process of the softening of, of our relations with one another has started, uh, and it's already visible, and is making a certain impact, even though I wouldn't say that we're becoming more prosperous. Я думаю, что когда есть богатые и бедные, это губительно действует на милосердие. I'm sure that when you have a sharp opposition between rich and poor, that has a impact on uh, and it, it undermines the quality of mercifulness. Но если бы состояние всего общества поднимается, я не вижу тут ничего плохого. But if everyone becomes more prosperous, if everyone in the society becomes better off, that shouldn't have that effect. The richer people are, the more mercifulness. Is that what you're saying? From the purely philosophical point of view. I don't know. Я еще раз повторяю, милосердие, наверное, зависит от каких-то других причин. Во всяком случае, у нас упадок милосердия зависел от разных, разного рода исторических и социальных каких-то тяжелых явлений, которые были вот в годы культа и, и позже. Prosperity and the presence of charity in society. In fact, the disappearance of charity in our society has been the result of other factors during the period of the cult of the personality, which you all know about. What we just listened to the excerpt from the Fazil Iskandera. These are terrible facts about people. You've heard. Uh, you just heard an extract from the book by Fazil Iskander, and you saw how uh, people were being treated uh, in such a demeaning way in, uh, in that uh, uh, extract that was written. That's why I was wondering that people were laughing so much and they, when the translation was read.
Thanks very much. Не кажется ли вам, что который сейчас наступил, это результат атеистического общества? Что то, с чем Россия была горда, и когда Достоевский говорил, что она спасет мир, что это стало, стало сейчас, через 70 лет, это сказалось. И тот человек, который готовился быть священником, вы знаете, наш великий Сталин, который закончил только два года семинарий, он сделал, он разбил то, что действительно держало Россию на высоте моральной. У меня к вам такой вопрос. Что не кажется ли вам, что это результаты? Я, я думаю, что вы, вы правы, что нет зависимости между благосостоянием и моралью, но то, чем Россия горда была, было разрушено годами безбожия, я хочу сказать. Я сам не верующий почти. The question is whether it wasn't the destruction of religion which has led to this uh, merciless and severe relations among people in, in the Soviet Union. Uh, religion uh, and our belief uh, in religion or belief in God was the basis of the morality in Russia prior to the Soviet period and the destruction of religion by the, uh, in this, under the Soviet period. Was that not the cause of this phenomenon mentioned by Mr. Granin? Я не думаю, что это так, потому что в России религия никогда не была сильной. I don't think that was so. I don't think that uh, belief in religion was ever that strong in Russia. Православие было всегда куда слабее, чем католическая религия. Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, is always weaker religion than Catholicism. И народ довольно легко отошел от религии. And the, uh, the Russian people departed from Russian Orthodoxy rather uh, readily. Нравственность, конечно, религия как-то, я не могу сказать, что она мешала нравственности, она ее поддерживала в какой-то мере. I certainly wouldn't say that religion was an enemy of morality, rather to the contrary. Но вот то, что говорил Достоевский, что если Бога нет, то все дозволено. Я думаю, что это не так. Я думаю, что во время блокады, например, люди, которые вовсе не верили в Бога, не позволяли себе многих безнравственных поступков в этих очень страшных условиях, а сохраняли добро, любовь и человечность. Для того, чтобы быть добрым и милосердным, не обязательно верить в Бога. Okay, compassion, that's fine, I'll buy that. It's been suggested by Mrs. Dunham that the word milosirdia should be translated as compassion rather than as charity. I think that's a good idea. On that Christian note, we now... <laughs>